This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, a new STC for Cessna panel modifications. And Ampere flies the Eco Caravan Hybrid. A Mooney knocks out power to thousands in Maryland. And many aircraft owners will be delighted to know their registrations have been extended. Finally, gamma numbers are out and they're looking good. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. Yeah, I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week. Finally, I'm pulling my weight again. It's somebody I spoke to. Uh, I like to tease you about this because you you get to a lot of the interviews, which I appreciate. But um, this is Paul Milner. Paul, if you've been following the Avgas issue at all, his name you'll recognize it because Paul is an expert in the fuels area in the area of of fuels. So he he's an independent source, and we sat down with him because while he does consult for AOPA on fuels. He also works with some other companies. And so I wanted to sit with him to just talk about what is going on with the SAP gas issue. When can we expect it in, in our tanks? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, he's a, an industry leading expert on it, Ian. So I'm really excited to hear what he's got to say. And thank you to you for tracking Paul down. I know he's pretty busy. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. Okay, so let's get to the news. This is a cool little product that's out now. Little product. It's actually a huge effort for these guys that so you may not know this. Well, you're going to know soon. Yes, you're going to know. In just and, a minute. Um, this is something you didn't know you needed, but you do need. If you make a Cessna panel modification, there is a good chance that your avionics shop or your mechanic or whomever has probably screwed up and cut the sub-panel of your Cessna, and it renders it immediately unairworthy because that's a structural piece. Unairworthy. That's right. As you know, airplane owners know this. A lot of times there's not a lot of room in the panel to do some work to add some of the modern equipment like Garmin G5s or the 10-inch panels that we're looking at, you know, the digital panels, the all-in-ones. So the folks at Six Pack Arrow, uh, Lyle Jansma, who I ran into at um, the Spokane Fly-In, he went ahead and was trying to do an upgrade to the family Cessna 172. Now, we should mention it. This is for the early, like, I want to say the mid-model 172s. Yeah. Kind of the mid-70s, mid-to-late 70s, right? Exactly. And if you're not careful and you cut that sub-panel, like you said, Ian, it immediately renders that aircraft unairworthy. Mm-hmm. So Lyle did some experimentation, and he came out with a really cool modular way to upgrade that panel where it will keep the structural integrity 
and he does all this with laser etched devices, and it's a very clean look, and it modernizes that that 172 that we know and love so much. Yeah, so this this is under the category. In fact, when he first reached out to us, I remember I, I, chatting back and forth with him, and I thought, okay, well, why? Like, do we even need this? Like, why are you offering it? Why have you gone through all this work? And he explained that as he's talked to owners, a lot of them just, they just aren't aware. They have no idea. They trust their shop to do the right thing. The shop is just kind of willy-nilly. They go in there and zoop, you know, quick piece of metal. They shave off and it's, that's it. And first of all, by the way, I want to back up a little bit. This is a little alarming when you think about it, that this little thin piece yeah. of sheet metal behind your panel is a structural element of your Cessna. But Ian, in this, in Cessna 172s, and I know from personal experience with Moonies and with Air Coops, you know, the, the control yoke goes right through part of that subpanel. Yeah. And so I think that is what we really need to keep in mind is that it's so close to a very major moving part, mm -hmm. you know, that keeps us in the air. But yes, it is alarming. Yeah. It is alarming yeah. to think about that. <laughs> So the SDC has been approved. They went through a lot of work to make sure, obviously, you know, with DERs and DIRs to make sure that uh, this would suffice. And you're right, it's a modular system, really smart. It is available now through, I think, Aircraft Spruce. Yeah, $6,950, $6,950. Yeah, so if you're thinking about a panel upgrade or even if you're doing a minor piece on your 172 and you want to make sure you're in compliance, definitely check it out because it's it's a cool new product. And plans are in place to get to both go backwards and forwards, the backwards to the B, C, and D models, and moving forwards to an SDC for the Cessna 182s. Great. Yeah, good. There you go. Good. Okay, David, speaking of new things, Ampere, they are the hybrid electric power plant manufacturer, I guess for lack of a better word, working with a Cessna caravan. They have now completed their first flight from Camarillo, California. Yeah, a 33-minute hop from Camarillo, California, local flight. And it was uh, basically done to, to check the propulsion system, the initial checks on the aircraft, things like that. Now, you know, this is an interesting-looking aircraft, and it's got a belly pod with a bunch of batteries in it. Yeah. It's a, but it's a hybrid electric aircraft. So, you know, you and I both um, have experience with Toyota Priuses, yeah. and, you know, that, that hybrid electric model might be what we see in my opinion that's what i think we're going to see with aviation that's going to be that's going to what's what's going to probably take it's what i think yeah i think you're right and and the, one of the reasons that this is interesting is they claim ampere claims that there is no difference in payload so unlike what we've been expecting with some of these electric aircraft with heavy batteries they're saying no there's no penalty I think the power to weight is similar to the traditional turbine, but they're talking about 25 to 40% less of a carbon footprint. So, and, and of course that means operating costs, that much less operating costs. Right, Le uh, lower operating costs, that could help too as, as well. And providing more than 2000 fast charge cycles before replacement is required with typical usage. Mm -hmm. You know, that's interesting. They expect the eco caravan to reduce fuel consumption and emissions by about 70%, yeah. which is pretty substantial, I would say. Yeah, that is hugely substantial. So one of my favorite parts about this story, this was on Avweb, we should say. Avweb carried this story, and we thank them for that. Of course, Avweb has comments. And one of my favorite parts is when you get into the comments, it just, as you can imagine, it immediately devolves into this, like, climate change battle of wits between people uh -huh. who feel very strongly on one side or the other and they're busting out studies and numbers and everything else and i'm like only only pilots could have this discussion because not it's like they don't just say climate change is uh real or it's not real it's like 
I've read this study that has this much parts per million and I've read this that so it's like it it gets it gets intense fast. I'm sure it does. You know, and the, the thing is is that we still need to consider the infrastructure even for these electric hybrid technology uh, aircraft moving forward because Ian, let's face it right now, not a lot of airports are going to have an electric substructure, yeah. you know, uh, infrastructure there to charge the eco caravans uh, and and whatnot. So there are some issues about ramping up that are very real. Oh yeah. But but now I got to tell you down the street from me at the Royal Farms gas station, there are like charging, you know, stations for for Teslas and other electric uh, automobiles and so maybe one day we'll see more of that at airports, and I'll be honest with you, Ian, I wouldn't mind seeing more solar panels at airports as long yeah. as they're zoned for something like that. That could help, too. Yeah, that's a good point. David, all right, we got to—we don't talk about accidents a bunch here, but I do want to talk about this one just because it really received nationwide coverage. I mean, the one of the stories, for example, that we were reading is in the New York Times. A Mooney got caught up in high-tension power lines on approach to Gaithersburg in Maryland, close to Frederick. Just a phenomenal story. They were, the two occupants were, uh, they survived. I don't want to say unhurt. They were, they said they were seriously hurt. One of them only spent a night in the hospital. The other, they got banged up quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. The other, we're not so sure about. The pictures are just incredible. I mean, sitting there dangling from the top of this structure. Of course, there's all sorts of questions about how they got there in the first place. Yeah. You know, Ian, uh, one thing I want to mention right at the beginning that does say a lot about the, the structure of a Mooney, you know, that. <laughs> cockpit tube construction. (laughs) It's a pretty stout airplane. Now, assuming they're on final approach to Gaithersburg, Mm -hmm. about a mile, like you said, a mile and a half away. So they're probably going 90 knots, you know, 100 miles an hour and slammed into, uh, you know, a power grid that was about 10 stories off the deck, you know, so that's a 100 foot tall series of power lines and iron substructure, Mm -hmm. which is pretty stout. Yeah, the photos are by the Montgomery County Emergency Fire Services, and they are excellent photos. It really is remarkable. But, Ian, you know, the thing is, is the passengers were in touch with emergency services via 911 calls from their cell phones. So they had presence of mind to make the calls. They didn't know what to do. The wires were hot. The folks in the, the pilot and the passenger in the airplane had to wait seven hours or so to get rescued from a hundred and some odd feet off the ground. Mm -hmm. At one point they were going to try to hop from the airplane to the structure itself, but that would have been a no-go if it still had power going through it. We should also mention that the power company turned off the power to, I want to say it was about 70 or 80,000 customers initially in that Montgomery County area. It resulted in kids not going to school on a Monday and some other issues, you know, with traffic lights and things like that. So there was some local uproar about that. And as you can imagine, Ian, questions are already being posed about, well, that airport is so close to a suburban environment, which it is. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we need to let the investigation take place and and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, it's true. I mean, one thing, obviously, even looking at the photos, you can see immediately weather is an issue, right? I mean, it was foggy, so they were at least a couple miles from the runway, presumably, I think, on the on the approach, maybe, on the RNAV. So it's like to be 100 feet above the ground or whatever the tower is, 150 feet above the ground, that far away, it's like something. That's too low. Yeah. Something wrong there. My uh, my instructors chide me. In fact, Dave Hirschman often chides me on being too low, and he'll he'll ask, he'll like he'll go like this, he'll say, "Hey, David, uh, you think you're on glide path?" So I have to make the 
you know, the determination, and usually the answer is no. Yeah. And then what is it? <laughs> well, too low. Well, right. in the instrument work, you never want to be too low. Yeah. You, know, you could be a little high. That's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing is, Ian, I was driving around that, that night when this occurred. We were taking my daughter, Lauren, back to the um, big airport at Baltimore, Washington International Airport, BWI. And, Ian, it was so foggy that I actually filed a couple of uh, fog reports on the highway going to Baltimore from the Frederick area um, via, I use Waze when I'm driving around. And so I filed multiple fog reports and other drivers did too. So it was a terrible night to be out flying a GA. Yeah. So um, if you had somewhere to be, you know, and it was a real job and you were a commercial pilot, I, I could maybe see it. But um, I, I don't think I, Dave T., would be a would have been flying on that kind of night in those kind of conditions. Yeah. And, you know, these things, I mean, I know it's not something that we think about often uh, when we're flying because we're thinking about the safety of ourselves and then, you know, keep taking care of the airplane and everything else. But again, the comments, I go to the comments, the comments in the time story, uh, not surprisingly, there are many comments from people who say, Basically, why do we let these people fly these airplanes? Uh, yeah. They're yeah. falling out of the sky. It's like everyone They jump to, to a conclusion. I mean, these pilots were instrument, the pilots, the instrument rated pilot, yeah. clearly, clearly uh, had the equipment in that Mooney 201 to fly. All those 201 Moonies, I won't say all of them, when they left the factory, they were equipped with some nice Benix King avionics, quite capable avionics with sure. a lot of times panel-mounted GPSs, and that was back in the you know 80s and 90s. Right, yeah, sure, sure. But it's just like, you know, they, there's comments about, well, because I think the, the pilot may be 60-ish something, and so it's like people are saying, oh, you shouldn't be allowed to fly after 60, and it's like, and if you have an accident like this, who's paying for it? And so, I mean, regardless of whether it is legal and, and whether the guy was up to snuff and everything else, it's like the, the, the public perception hit is real. Yeah. I mean, it, it's real. So especially in this area, I mean, you mentioned that airport. That airport's really, it's, it's under a lot of threat from neighbors. I mean, they've had, they had a horrific accident a few years ago uh, with a jet. And right. so, I mean, this the, really, these things, we have to consider it because it, it, there's impacts. That airport is boxed in. Like you said, it's a it's a very dense suburban environment. For folks who don't know Gaithersburg, it's one of the reliever airports for Washington, D.C. It's about, I don't know, 20 miles north of the D.C. area up uh, Interstate 270, which connects Frederick to Washington, D.C. So a lot of there's a lot of heavy iron that comes in and out of that airport as well. There's some robust flight schools that are operating there. There's a great on-field restaurant, I got to admit, over at Gaithersburg also. But, you know, the thing is about this particular accident, like I said, we're still going to wait for things to come more into focus. But when the pilot called 911, the Washington Post reported that they admitted they might have been a little too low. And so that is something that I think investigators will look at further, you know, besides that. And and, and were things done by the book as far as, you know, instrument flight rules uh, with an alternative airport? And what were the minimums? Did Were the minimums, uh, was it below minimums at Gaithersburg? I mean, these things are, are still going to come into focus. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And we'll be right back. Hey, some common sense changes to the regulations. As you know, aircraft registrations have to be renewed every three years. Right. But now thanks to a direct-to-final rule, that is going to change to seven years. So finally, some relief for people who have just been just struggling to get their registration renewed or changed. Yeah, you know, Ian, as as an aircraft owner yourself, you know that this could be a real hassle 
you know, it takes a while to get the paperwork over to the Oklahoma office in the first place. Mm-hmm. And having that extension is really going to be helpful from three to seven years. That's going to be good. But even uh, a couple of things that, that to make note of, right now it takes several months just to get back that registration paperwork originally that you're supposed to keep in your aircraft. And it's not uncommon for it to take three to six months. Yeah. So, so a little known fact, you can also send a note to the FAA and ask for an extension on that initial registration window. Mm-hmm. And I was told by Michelle Locke, one of our colleagues up here who bought a Cessna 140 with her husband, that you should wait till the end of that original 180 days because then you get another 180 days from the, from the time the paperwork or the email comes across the FAA's desk. Hmm. So in other words, so kind of ask for it, basically. Yeah, yeah, kind of wait to the end of that initial, and yeah. then ask for another. And I think there are going to be a lot of people in the same boat, Ian, because there has been a lot of aircraft buying and selling in the past six months to a year. Yeah, so a lot of people have been flying, let's say, under questionable circumstances because of this registration backlog. I mean, it's it's been a real problem. I mean, you think about flying internationally, you know, you buy a jet, you want to start flying the thing internationally, that's an issue. So there's all sorts of problems, and, and AOPA and others have been pushing for this change. And in fact, it was, I didn't even realize this, I guess, or I'd forgotten, it was a legislated change back in the 2018 FAA reauthorization that yeah. just hadn't gone into effect yet. And so it's like, through the work of, I think, Sam Graves. Yeah, thank you to Sam for helping us out with this. Sure. Yeah, friend in the house. They did push that forward. So the direct final rule means that you get about, I think, 30 days to comment. So if you want to comment and go in and say, yes, please do this, go for it. Make it extend to yeah. seven years for sure. Yeah, I think uh, we're all on board with that. And folks who just bought airplanes, like I was saying, the initial paperwork is still a snafu as well. So mm-hmm. do not forget about that and to keep your airplane airworthy. Yeah, that's right. Okay, David, we want to finish today with the gamma numbers. We talk about this every quarter. It's a nice snapshot of the health of the industry. And, geez, I guess across the board, everything's looking really good. Yeah, I would say the third quarter delivery numbers uh, show increases across all segments this time, Ian, and that is good. You and I like to go into some details about this. I made some notes for us just to take a look at. But it looks like worldwide we had 374 piston deliveries 136 turboprops, 293 total turbines, which includes biz jets, and 231 helicopters for a total airplane billings number of 14.1 billion, which was a 4.8% increase over previously. That's year to date. Yeah, good. Solid numbers. Yeah, that's great. So just by comparison, looking at last year, airplanes are up. Like, oh boy, 10% maybe, piston piston airplanes. Turboprops are about flat, which I think is to be expected. Biz jets are looking really good. I think, you know, helicopters are up more than 10%. So overall, yeah, those are good numbers. Good news for helicopters, absolutely. That's yeah. something that we've been lamenting for a couple of quarters, Ian. That's really good news. Yeah, and in fact, most of those are in the turbine market, which is obviously the higher dollar. So right. yeah, all, all that's that's actually phenomenally good when you think about the supply chain problems that all these manufacturers are facing. Because these are, these are, of course, deliveries, not orders. So that's really good. True. Yeah. Yeah. Now, a couple of things I noted, Ian, that that I want to say are rough spots in the report. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, you and I usually take a deeper dive in this than some other folks. I noted there were only four multi-engine aircraft delivered in the USA this quarter, which hmm. is the same as quarter one and quarter two. That's interesting. 
That is really interesting because obviously more than that are being built. I mean, when, I, when I'm looking at, uh, well, let's say Diamond, the DA42, I mean, they built seven, just Diamond. So that is, that's interesting. So they must be going elsewhere, but not to the USA. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Now, what about Cirrus? They seem to be strong again. Yeah, of course. They're a machine. I mean, last year, third quarter, they did 144 deliveries. This year, 155. There you go. Very good. I was looking at Diamond. It looks like they had a 41 deliveries plus 13 of the DA62 Twins. Hmm. Now, we already know the Twins aren't generally coming to the USA. Yeah. So they must be in Europe still. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, those diesel engines aren't generally as attractive in the U.S., which is uh, understandable given that the fuel costs aren't hugely different. Looking at, uh, boy, let's see. How about Piper? We always look to look at Piper. Yeah, take a look at Piper. Because they, you know, they a couple of years ago, they inked a really big deal with ATP. Mm-hmm. That was for a lot of the single-engine trainers. You know, they came out with um, with a trainer model, the Piper you know, 100. So what are they doing? Yeah, they're they're having a rough year. Last year, they put out 72 airplanes in the third quarter. This year, 46. And out of those 46, I saw four Seminoles and zero Seneca uh, sixes. Seneca fives, I'm sorry, Seneca fives. Yeah, of course, then there's Textron, which for a little while, it seemed like, you know, boy, you look, I don't know how many years ago, let's call it five, maybe. Uh Cessna really dominated the training market is a smaller market, but but Cessna obviously dominated. And then Piper brought in some sales talent and really came back with some of those big fleet sales you were talking about. They've they've kind of filled those out, and now I think Cess- the the really the pendulum is kind of swinging back to Cessna. I mean, they had Textron had 150 total deliveries in the third quarter. That includes jets too, though. It does. Right? That's and everything. The King Airs and all. Uh-huh. Yeah, but for example, last year, which was already a big Skyhawk year, there were 42 in the third quarter last year. This year they're fifty six. So that's good. It's a little bit more. Yeah, they keep chucking those out of independence. Yeah. Now, one thing that to me is a little—I don't want to say it's alarming, but it's noticeable—and I didn't realize this, but zero Barons in A thirty six models during this uh, quarter. Yeah. But on the flip side, they're starting to get the Sky Couriers out there. A mm-hmm. couple of Sky Couriers have been delivered, and eighteen King Airs. And 13 caravans. Yeah. Yeah, but you're right. Those, you know, the G36 and G58 are just, have not been big sellers the past couple of years. Well, barely any sellers the past couple of years. So, yeah, it's 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 been tough. Those airplanes are so nice. Yeah, I mean, they it, really are. Stout, comfortable, you know, it just, it you know, it exudes confidence mm-hmm. when you're behind the controls of one of those. Yeah, you know, that would be really interesting. I, I would love to talk to a new Cirrus buyer to know, because, I mean, I'm looking at 20, uh, last year, zero Bonanza or Baron delivers the entire year. I think there are maybe zero so far this year. Right. So, it used to be Mooney, you had the choice of Mooney. Bonanza or Cirrus. I mean, some of the diamonds. Yeah, I mean, really though, to performance-wise and kind of cost-wise, it was like SR22, maybe an Acclaim or a Bonanza, and no Moonies, obviously, and no Bonanzas. So, are all those people going to Cirrus? Are they going maybe use Turbine? Are they going over to Piper for the M class, or are they buying experimentals, maybe like RV10s, that sort of thing? It would be interesting to know where those folks have gone. Absolutely. Well, as far as the used market goes, Ian, it's, you know, it, it had blown up for a while and it was just going gangbusters. I think we're seeing a little bit of a slowdown 
in the used market. I think yeah. it's coming down a little bit. It's getting a little bit more realistic, you know, price-wise and inventory-wise. But before we leave um, the Cirrus folks, I just noticed an interesting trend. So the the SR20. Uh, of which Cirrus does have the track version, which is a trainer version of the SR-20. Mm -hmm. They went from eight aircraft delivered in quarter one to 27 in quarter two to 38 in quarter three. So a steady uptick on the SR-20, which is not a $1 million airplane. It's, you know, a $600,000, $700,000 aircraft, which is still pricey. Mm-hmm. But you've got the CAPS parachute, uh, and it's a good entry-level Cirrus. Yeah. Um, the the SR-22s and 22Ts are, are pretty consistent at uh, 34 SR-22s delivered this quarter versus 33 last quarter. And 60 this quarter of the, um, the SR-22Ts versus 53 last quarter. Yeah. Yeah. So, like we said, that's all really good news given the supply chain problems. So, uh, we love to love to hear that. And it'll be really interesting in a couple of months to see how the, how the year shakes out completely. I think if you ask the manufacturers, they'd probably say they could put out even more. They, they could sell even more and deliver even more if they had the, the people and the parts. So... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And all those aircraft are going to need aviation fuel. Yes, at least in the short term. That's correct. So Paul Milner, the expert in this area, and I say expert, be prepared. You might have to listen to this one a few times because Paul is so knowledgeable. He and, and, you know, he's a chemist, right? So it's like, uh, well, an engineer or whatever. So we're going to get a little technical in spots, so bear with us. But uh, it's a great discussion, and I think you'll you'll be amazed at it just all that goes into getting the fuel through the approval process, through the refinery and to the tank. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm really excited to talk to you. We talk a lot about Avgas on the show, but it's something that I'm, I am i hate to admit, I don't know a lot about in terms of the background. So um, you're the right guy to talk to. You worked in the oil industry for for many years, and it's a, I think it's a space that a lot of us, of course, we interact with, right? Because we all buy fuel, but most of us know nothing about. So tell us a little bit about your background. Okay. Well, so I spent uh, 38 years at a, at a Fortune 10 company. Uh, uh, in refineries and chemical plants, but also worked in central engineering and in the research organization. So I've seen a number mm-hmm. of aspects of the of the business. I'm a I'm a private pilot. I've been flying since uh, 1978. It's hard to get a hard to get a, a license in uh, middle school anymore, but you know, yeah, right. to do that. <laughs> That's uh, right. And uh, I'm also one of the founders of the Cardinal Type Club, Cardinal Flyers. Mm-hmm. So had a broad uh, range of experiences. And what I noticed way back in 1991, when the FAA launched the uh, Coordinating Research Council group that was looking at unleaded avgas, uh, reading the minutes of that group, it was apparent that uh, people were talking past each other. The engine people didn't understand the fuels people, the fuels people didn't understand the airframe manufacturers. There just wasn't any common bond amongst them. The oil companies weren't sending private pilots to these meetings, right? And as a private pilot and a person that had actually had blended gasoline in my life, it was very frustrating to, to watch all of that going on. 
and so uh, I, I started, uh, I guess, tampering in the process in, uh, in, the, in the mid to late 90s uh, by talking to other folks and saying, well, you know, I saw you said this in the minutes, but, you know, you realize that those guys didn't really understand what you were saying because they have a different frame of reference. I was working hard with the representative from my company who was coming from a very different background, uh, didn't understand aviation, and unfortunately wasn't the world's best gasoline blender either. His experience was more in jet fuel. They said, oh, well, it's aviation, so you can do this. You know, well, no, gasoline is very different than jet fuel. Anyway, so I've been monitoring that. And then when first Swift came on the scene, the founder of Swift was uh, John Rusek. And he actually had worked for a company that had spun off of my corporation many years in the past. But uh, there's still streets named in the refinery that I worked in after some of the processes that his company had developed. Oh, wow. And uh, I said, well, John, you know, you're your ab gas really isn't going to work, you know? And so we'd have these long discussions mm -hmm. and uh, John was a catalysis guy. And so, uh, you know, as long as it didn't matter what the problem was, the answer was a new catalyst. Right. And so that was, <laughs> that was, that was not entirely helpful either, but we, we had some conversations over the time. And then I had been friends with uh, George Brawley and Tim Reel at Gammy uh, for many years. And in fact, uh, uh, the company I'd worked for, had uh, collaborated with them for three years on trying to come up with an unleaded avgas hmm. before the company I work for decided that the FAA was uh, too difficult to work with, that they were not following science. They were, they were uh, deciding, oh, we're going to regulate this into existence. And so, no, you can't regulate a fuel. You have to, you have to figure out what works scientifically, and then you can write regulations yeah, around that. But the FAA yeah. thought they'd regulate first, and and uh, the science would just have to follow along. But that's not a very good, very good strategy. So when uh, Tim and George decided in 2009 that, well, we're going to develop an avgas, I gave them some ex officio help because I was still working for big oil at that time. But then I retired in 13 and then I could help them as much as I wanted. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've, never, I've never signed a contract with them. I've never been a paid consultant, but I, I, I do try to help them. And I still try to, I offer my advice to Swift, whether they really care to receive it or not. Whether they want it or not. Yeah. Whether right. they want it or not. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And that's, I think what's interesting about your perspective is you're, you're neutral. I mean, I think a lot of, we've been hearing a lot of folks who say, well, why can't we just go with this solution or that solution? It's like, you've kind of seen it from all different angles. And yeah. so it's, it's a good perspective. And of course, I just want to say from the outset, you're also consulting with AOPA on this from a technical right. experience uh, right. aspect. I've, so I've had, I've had very detailed discussions with the folks at Shell, you know, before they withdrew. And even after they withdrew uh, with some Phillips folks and with Lyondale folks. So I, I've talked to all the, the people that actually know how to make gasoline that are they're yeah. working on these things. And uh, they don't always appreciate my perspective. And I understand that, you know, they, they have a different view and, and, sure. and they're trying, they, their oxes have been gored in different ways. Right. So, yeah, um, yeah, that's right. So let's, let's start with, I could think the most important question, which is, if I own an engine, would, well, I do own an engine. So I own an engine that I, it's higher compression. I can't put mo gas into it. When am I going to be able to put an unleaded av gas into my engine? And, and will it be before the EPA completely bans lead? Well, you know, I don't, uh, my crystal ball is a little foggy, but what GAMI tells us and, and their plans seem reasonable is that uh, they, they plan to roll out their fuel to selected customers uh, in 23 and to have it more broadly available in 24. So, uh, so when one of those selected customers, for instance, uh, they've told me they're in discussions with the folks at Reed Hillview to try to bring mm -hmm. their 100 their unleaded in because Reed Hillview has declined to sell leaded fuel. So they're selling 94 unleaded because that's all they yeah. can get. But, yeah. but the, 
the management at the airport's interested in, in selling 100 unleaded, what their political taskmasters that decided not to sell leaded fuel, what they'd really like, what they want to accomplish, that's open to speculation and you can read all kinds of political gambits about that. But the the airport at least is, is interested in selling. So I would think by by summer of 23, you should be able to fly into Reed Hillview and buy some 100 unleaded avgas. Hmm. It's a little bit of a trip for you, I recognize, coming from Maryland. Yeah, but yeah right. A little right. closer for me, but yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we just heard that all the STCs were approved across the basically the entire fleet. So why another year? I mean, why can't, what, what goes into this that it's something that can't just happen? It's like, boom, we got the formulation, it's approved. Let's make this thing and ship it tomorrow. What, why, why not? Well, the first step is GAMI doesn't plan to make the fuel themselves. You know, they're, they're not an oil company mm-hmm. or a blender. They are making some trial batches. They have some facilities that their partner Avfuel has provided them with so they can make small batches for, right. for testing. You know, they're, they're making a batch for one of the aviation manufacturers right now who wants to, you know, test it at, at their facility. But that's not a production facility. So GAMI's been in discussions all along with big oil companies and smaller blenders and all kinds of folks that might make this fuel. But no one's been willing to make a commitment or to invest money because GAMI didn't have an STC. You know, so it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's really nice that you're going to have a baby, but until we see the baby, we can't put it to work, right? Mm-hmm. So now that they, got, they were granted their STCs on September 1st, those discussions are, are ramped up another notch, but there's all the commercial terms and conditions, you know, have to be agreed to. Then yeah. the next step is, uh, you know, let's say Joe Schmo has a refinery in, in Louisiana or in Texas or wherever it is. Mm-hmm. And they say, hey, we want to make this stuff. But the components that are in here, even though they're things that we have in our refinery, they're not connected to our gasoline blending manifold. So now we have to make those connections. And, uh, well, you know, how much is that going to cost? Can we get it budgeted? Can we do the work anytime or do we have to wait for a turnaround, a shutdown of some of the equipment in the refinery so we can make those tie-ins. So mm. there's logistics involved in, in actually uh, in making it happen. I mean, in, in order to get there more quickly, people are looking at kinds of things. Oh, we're going to load this component into a truck on one side of our facility, drive it across the facility, and then pump it into a different part of the facility. Well, that's, you can do that on an ad hoc basis, but that's no way to be in the oil business, right? Yeah, so, right. So, so... Those kind of things have to happen. And then the whole rollout calendar has to be worked out. So does a refiner decide, well, I'm just going to stop making 100 low lead and I'm going to make this 100 unleaded instead. And and uh, what's that going to do to my market? Because does everyone that I'm selling to today want to buy that? There are people out there, you, certainly if you read the internet forum boards, that are uh, they're very averse to being early adopters. They said, oh, I want to run lead forever. You know, I'm only going to live yeah. another 20 years. Well, I'm only going to fly another 20 years. So I, I just want to use lead. <laughs> They're going to hold on till the end. Yeah, yeah. something I know. You know, well, yeah. you know, it, there's always a risk with change, right? So we sure. don't know what we don't know. Yeah. This stuff's been tested very thoroughly. And, you know, they've been at this for, for 13 years now. And they're flying it in airplanes. But there could be some weird quirk that occurs at some place, and there's a lot of people that are averse to being the one to, to discover that, understandably, mm. right? So the, the oil company or the blender, because you don't have to be an oil company to blend fuel, will have to uh, determine, you know, does there, is their market really ready to support this? And you, you, you don't accomplish that in the morning. You don't just call up all your customers one morning and say, hey, how about if we switch over? You know, one of their natural questions is, what's going to be the cost differential? Well, we're not really sure, you know. So, mm-hmm. you know, they have to have to work those details out because yeah. until you know exactly how you're going to blend it and what that's going to cost you, there, there's concerns, concerns about that. Yeah. So something that you said a couple of minutes ago, just about 
they have the components, let's say, uh, most refineries or blenders have these components. So can you talk just a little bit about some of the fuels that are being developed, GAMIs, you know, SWIFTs, others? You know, we, I, I think a lot of us don't understand really the difference between auto gas, let's say something I go and take at the pump and, and, and av gas. So I, the question is, how different is this process? I know with, with lead, there's been some handling issues that have to happen. And so there's a complexion there, but yeah. uh, complexity there, but not so with this. So how much different is it for, for these refiners and blenders and, and, and what will that mean to the market and the difficulty getting <clears> there? Well, there's uh, MoGas. Uh, they, they'll, they'll take away my uh, my refinery responsibility if I call it auto gas or car gas or MoGas, motor gasoline for cars. Mm -hmm. The stuff you find at the corner station is made very differently than Avgas and uh, made out of different stuff. So like the refinery I worked at most recently, there were 13 different gasoline components that came together to make MoGas. And those were blended to make the most economic fuel that met all the specifications for, you know, regular, middle grade and premium. And not only that, but there were different constraints depending on where that fuel is going to be sold. Because mm -hmm. some areas require reformulated gasoline, which is a cleaner burning gasoline, which is why gasoline costs so much more in California, for instance. Some areas have different vapor pressure specifications. So the, the there's a big map of the U.S. that shows all the different vapor pressure zones. And and those those uh, change like four times a year, but the uh, they change differently. So you have to blend the gasoline differently to to tailor for those zones. So there's quite a bit of complexity to MoGas blending, and it tends to be a, uh, a continuous blend process where all these components come into a series of headers. The computer decides how to best make the the fuel, and then there's online analyzers to say, are we making octane? Are we making vapor pressure? Are we making distillation in real time so that you can correct the formulation, correct the blend if you need to as you go along. Avgas isn't like that at all. On the one hand, the facilities for Avgas are much higher quality. So Avgas requires coated tanks, for instance, whereas MoGas goes into bare steel tanks. And Avgas uh, facilities for product integrity reasons have to be completely isolated. So they won't be manifolded to everything the way that that MoGas facilities are. That creates a challenge here. So for instance, even if a refinery has, uh, if they want to make GAMI 100 unleaded, for instance, and they've got access to mixed xylenes, which is a component of GAMI 100 unleaded, that doesn't mean that, uh, well, certainly that stream is not connected to their Avgas blending system because for product integrity, you don't connect anything to the Avgas system that isn't a part of Avgas. And, and historically, the mixed silings could not be a part of Avgas, so those, those aren't mm. connected. And then Avgas is a traditionally batch blended instead of continuously blended. So, you know, first you put in the aviation alkylate, and then you add the isopentane, and then you add uh, whatever your aromatic correction stock is. Uh, toluene, historically, is what people have been using since under low lead came out. People have been adding toluene. Not everybody, but most people to to get the octane up, and then you uh, you circulate that tank, which mixes it, and in the circulation loop, you have a, a vacuum aspiration of the lead, the additive package mm. into that because nobody wants to pump lead. You don't want lead squirting out if a pump fails. Really bad hmm. stuff, right? Hmm. So they instead they suck it into the uh, into the blend, oh, cool. and it gets and it gets blended in by virtue of circulating the tank. So the tank will go around maybe 10 times and they've set the weight of lead that they want to go into that blend. And so it'll continue letting it aspirate in until that weight has gone in and then the valve will shut. So 
that facility then has to be modified. Now you're going to you know, want to put in, if you want to make GAMI 100 unleaded, you've got to put in mixed silenes. If you want to make SWIFTS uh, 100R, you have to put in ETBE, ethyl terp butyl ether, which all refineries may not have. And you have to pipe it up. Even if you did have it, you have to pipe it up into that system. I won't talk about Shell's fuel since they've stepped back. They say at least until there's a uh, endangerment finding by the EPA, which might make a business case for them to come back. The uh, Phillips fuel is going to be adding uh, MMT. Well, you could bring in MMT additive package and put it where the lead package is today, but that requires a little bit of work. Uh, Lyondell is saying that they'll have MMT and ETBE and and some other co-solvents. So they'll, there's even more work to do to, to try to incorporate incorporate all of that. The other issue is that the, the majority of avgas, whether it's 100 low lead today or 100 unleaded in the future, everybody's avgas, the majority of it is uh, aviation alkalate. So alkalate is a product in the refinery, which is uh, refinery cracking processes make uh, light ends, which aren't uh, particularly useful. You can't stick them in a gas tank and use them in a car, for instance. But some of those light ends can be recombined and through a process called alkylation, they can be stuck together to make isooctane, which is very good stuff, right? Definitionally 100 octane. So those are alkylation plants. But the in the alkylation process, there are some byproducts that are not very good for avgas. They're lower octane and they're a little heavier on distillation, which violates the distillation spec on, on avgas today. And so refineries that want to make avgas have to have a alkylate distillation column that separates the light alkylate from the heavy alkylate. And very few refineries have that anymore. It's an expensive column. It's expensive to build, expensive to run. And so mm. as those columns reached end of life, people would just say, well, I guess we exit the avgas business because it's not worth it to replace that column. So there's mm. limited places that's available. And some of the unleaded avgases have higher uh, quality requirements, higher octane requirements of, of the aviation alkylate than 100 low lead requires. So that's going to require some fiddling around. Either they're going to have to modify their alkylation process, which is very expensive and also tied to turnaround timing. You know, you can't do it while the plant's running. So when's the yeah. plant going to be down? You can't afford to shut the plant down to make this modification because you'll lose millions of dollars a day, right? So that that all has to be timed. But anyway, the, the, the bulk of the gasoline is this aviation alkylate. And then people add some light ends, isopentane typically, although there's alternatives, to get the vapor pressure up because there's a minimum vapor pressure spec so that, that you can start your engine in the wintertime. Yeah. And, and then they'll add their, their aromatic to, to, to boost the octane. Or in the future, people are talking about adding oxygenates, which aren't allowed today in Avgas, but the new, some of the new uh, Avgas specs allow that, unleaded Avgas. And then uh, whatever their trim material is. So uh, GAMI is using a uh, aromatic amine we see from their patents, right? Mm -hmm. Let's Google it. Google GAMI <laughs> patents. There it is. Or Google any one of those other, any one of those five com companies. They've all have patents to cover their unleaded avgas. And so you can read about what they have in mind. Swift is using ETBE. And we've already talked about uh, you know, Phillips and Lyondell and Shell. Anyway, those modifications have to be made. And once the marketing question has been answered, are people really ready for this stuff today or, or is yeah. it too soon? So how much as a, as a pilot am I going to care about was Gammy the one who originally developed this fuel? I mean, we talk about it now because we're, we're hoping <clears throat> sure. somebody gets the finish line quickly. But it's like, obviously, I, I would think the competition will be good for the market and help bring down prices. But it, it's like it's not a huge market in terms no. of, you know, the worldwide gas market. Right. No. So 
just because Gammy's first, does that mean they'll be the only formulation eventually? Or do you think others will eventually kind of come into the market and there'll be some competition and that might that might help all of us? Yeah, others certainly intend to come into the market. So there's hmm. there's a couple ways competition could happen. Uh, Gammy and Affuel have both said that uh, they have an open licensing model. You know, if you or I want to blend Avgas and we can put together a team and show Gammy that that we have a product integrity plan, that we're, we're not just some guy that's going to do something stupid, then... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they're willing to license their formula to us. That's not true of all the players, okay? But but Gammy has said that. So there could be competition from folks entering the market. Let's say you know some guy on the West Coast here has a business and he blends paint thinner for Home Depot, okay? Those are comparable volumes to, to Avgas volumes. You know, he could decide, hey, instead of blending paint thinner for Home Depot next month, I'm also going to start blending unleaded Avgas because once the lead is out, things become much simpler from a environmental perspective, a permitting yeah. perspective, insurance. Sure. It's really hard to get insurance for a facility that's got lead in it, right? And of course, the, the refineries that have been around since the 1920s, they've had lead in them for 100 years, and yeah. you know, it's kind of a sunk cost. But some new guy coming in, well, lead keeps them out. With, with uh, having an unleaded fuel, there's a lot more of these ad hoc blenders that could, could enter that marketplace, so there could be more competition. And then uh, thinking about it more in the way that I think you were asking the question is, sure, I, I fully anticipate that Swift will get their fuel approved. They say uh, they're going to enter limited distribution next year and, and broader distribution in 24. They've already got their 94 UL system in place, and it's pretty easy to upgrade that to 100 R, you know, mm -hmm. when, the, when the time comes. Uh, similarly, you know, if Philips and Orlando are successful in demonstrating to the FAA that their formulation works, and they've been tweaking that a little bit to try to get there, then, then, then they could be making those fuels too. As a pilot, there's a little bit of a paperwork exercise because right. both the GAMI fuel and the, uh, the SWIFT fuel require an STC. But if we look back in history, when Philips first introduced their 2050 multi-viscosity motor oil, that was done with an STC. I think it's probably fair to say that uh, the FAA was not inundated with 337s from people filing STCs so they could put 2050 motor oil in their in their airplanes. Yeah. Uh, and that could well be the case, too. I've, I've only heard of one airport that said they were going to have STC police standing out there at the pump to make sure people really had the STC or they couldn't put the fuel in their airplane. Mm. Uh, but I think even that one effort, uh, that didn't last very long. It's like a couple yeah. of weeks. And I said, well, this is kind of old. And similar to today, you know, uh, if you pull in, if you fly into a an airport that's uh, it's got MoGas available, there's nobody out there checking to make sure that you have a MoGas STC. You want to put MoGas in your airplane? Put MoGas in your airplane. And so that may well be the case. Now, some of us are more compliance minded. And we're saying, hey, you know, I, I I don't want any problems with my insurance. I don't want some FISDO inspector coming by and and uh, and, and giving me a hard time. Mm -hmm. And uh, after all, you know, Swift and Gammy have both spent a lot of money getting there for us. So I don't mind spending a few hundred bucks to to buy their SDC and, and be supported. Yeah, but there's the practical part of that, which is, you know, do you have to plan ahead to, for every fuel stop and be like, okay, well, I got to make sure to have this company's SDC and this one. It's like, ultimately, shouldn't they meet? I mean, today, what? It's an ASTM standard, right? right. That, that the refiners meet. Okay, they meet it. I can put it in my airplane. So I would well, hope that at some point yeah. we can get to that, right? Yeah, you're you're making the distinction in the wrong place, though, because mm. Swift intends to have an ASTM standard, so okay. they're they're going to have an ASTM standard, but the approval for the fuel is under STC, so an mm. ASTM standard doesn't solve that problem for you. There's a lot of people in the industry who say, "Oh, it needs an ASTM standard." Well, mm. no, that doesn't work because the intellectual property still has to be addressed. So in Swift's case, there's going to be an ASTM standard, they say, but you still need an STC. What Gammy has proposed to the FAA, and this may be a place where we all have to 
call up the FAA and say, hey, you guys, get your act together. And they've ended up, I think, talking to like six different subgroups inside the FAA who all said, this is a great idea. We ought to do this, but it's not our job, right? Yeah, of And Gammy yeah. said, well, what value is added by filling out a 337 and having somebody sign it and mail it in when you've got an SDC that applies to every airplane in the free fleet, right? And so what Gammy's proposed, just let people go online, purchase the STC, and have immediate approval, and then uh, either have the stickers there at the FBO or give them 30 days to put the stickers on, you know, reasonable compliance time, you know, write it in Sharpie on day one, right, on mm -hmm. the wing, and then put the sticker on later. Because, uh, you know, there's no requirement today that you have the actual sticker. You can just write it on your wing. A lot of people do. They have yeah. all kinds of fancy artwork, you know, painted on their wing to cover the <laughs> necessary placards. It doesn't have yeah. to be a specific piece of paper. And then that will get automatically registered at the FAA. So instead of the FAA having to handle, you know, 140,000 SDC applications or 337s, mm -hmm. which it's a handomatic system, that would be quite an yeah. inundation for those guys. This, this can be handled electronically. So that, that's their way of, of proposing to do it. Swift, you can, you can buy the STC online, but then normally you still have to go through the paperwork exercise. What we've suggested to the FAA is that, uh, well, you know, give, give people some lanyard, give them, a, give them a compliance period, say, well, as long as you've bought the STC, you've got 60, 90 days or until your next annual to actually file the thing. And so your IA can, as a part of doing your annual, oh yeah, I got this STC, okay, now we'll file the 337. If yeah. if the FAA can't handle doing it online, which seems mm -hmm. kind of sad in this day and age, but maybe right. maybe there's issues, you know. Yeah, that's so, right. So you know that that's a thing, and of course there's the there's the uh, cross fueling thing too. So you, know, you fly in, and they've got a different fuel. It's like, oh well, I know it works on my airplane, and on I go. But yeah, that's that's not the best way to do it. Yeah, right. So you mentioned that people, maybe there's some hesitancy. They want to stick with what they know. They want to keep flying with 100 low lead. So there, there's two questions related to that. One is, again, your crystal ball, if you could look <laughs> into it. Long, I mean, as, as far as I know, there's still just the one company in England, right, that that makes the tetraethyl lead. And so how long do you anticipate that's still going to be produced if, if aviation continues to be the biggest buyer of that? And then the second question is just, you know, from your background, your engineering background, do you have any sort of hesitancy once the fuel is approved, to be able to put it straight into your airplane, and to you, it's like, hey, it's approved, it's been tested, let's go. So, uh, so InnoSpec is the company there, and and they're owned by uh, by Afton, who's working with Philips on on their solution, non leaded solution. Uh, InnoSpec and their predecessors have gone bankrupt once or twice, you know, over time. But their position at present is that, hey, as long as there's demand, we'll continue to operate and make this stuff. My nightmare scenario has always been because. There's a lot of community opposition to that plant. There's a historical no documentation of uh, damage to children downstream in the in the lead plume downstream for that plant. Uh, I'd like to think that uh, that environmentally it's more responsible now than it was 20 years ago, but I have no idea. I, I don't mm -hmm. know. But uh, my my nightmare scenario is that that plant burns down this afternoon. So there's two questions. First of all, what's the prospect that they'd be able to get a permit? to repair or rebuild their plant. And secondly, what's the likelihood that their stockholders say, yeah, this is a great deal. Let's go invest a bunch of money in a, in a product that we know is at end of life, right? So if that were to happen, then, then there's an issue. Now, both, both China and Russia have made lead in the past. I'm not sure Russia is a very good training partner right now. And my understanding is that the Russian lead plant is, is beyond redemption at this point. It's been abandoned and not maintained for so long. There's a bunch of companies in China that make tetraethyl lead, but the samples I've seen are not inspiring. You know, tetraethyl lead should be clear. 
Hmm. And uh, you can Google, you know, China tetraethyl lead, and you'll say, oh, here's our tetraethyl lead. And you say, well, it's inky black. You know, that's not a good thing hmm. because the black, you know, lead compounds can be black, but the lead compounds in tetraethyl lead aren't supposed to be black, right? So I don't know what the what the QC implications are, and yeah. I don't know what kind of quantities those guys are capable of. I mean, if you're making it on a lab bench, you can make some tetraethyl lead, and, and that's all you need. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, going into the future, the way that uh, octane engines, the octane engine's a special engine that's used to measure the octane of a fuel. It's an analytical engine, mm -hmm. and those are calibrated using lead because we know how to get to higher octanes using lead. But, you know, the amount of lead they use uh, is less than a measuring cup a year. Well, these companies in China can certainly make a measuring cup a year of tetraethyl lead. Can yeah. they make the volume of lead that we that we would need to support our 100 low lead? That That's a question to me. So hmm. that, that, that's that's the issue going forward is that, you know, the lead supply is uncertain. But I'm, I'm optimistic to answer the, the other question he asked is that, uh, yeah, we, we watched this stuff for so long. Uh, all kinds of people are running their airplane, including uh, Senator Imhoff from Oklahoma that runs it in his RV4, right? Because mm -hmm. as, as an experimental aircraft, he gets to decide. Some of the uh, some of the folks in Eagle, the, mm -hmm. the group that's trying to get the lead out of it, they say, oh, well, you know, uh, GAMI doesn't have approval yet for experimental airplanes. I, I think that's a misnomer because an experimental yeah. airplane, the the owner of the airplane gets to decide what the appropriate fuel is. And there's certainly data there to show that GAMI 100 lead meets or exceeds every performance uh, characteristic of 100 low lead. So if I were flying an experimental, even if I had some really weird engine setup, I would no have have any I would not have any hesitancy to use the GAMI 100 unleaded as as being mm -hmm. adequate adequate for my engine. There's also an issue, you know, for the Warbirds and some of the like experimental demonstration categories that that aren't included. But uh, the good news there is that the GAMI STCs are FAA-approved data. So any DER, uh, Designated Engineering Representative, can take that approved data and issue an approval for those aircraft to, to operate on, on GAMI's fuel. And GAMI has DERs, and, and they're willing to do that work, too. They say, hey, give us a call. But you don't have yeah. to use them if you don't want. You can use your own DER. So, you know, it's, uh, but the good news is the approved data is there in, in the, in the hmm. form of the STCs. Interesting. Well, I know it's been a long road, like you mentioned. I mean, what is it, 20, 30 years now? That 31 years, been, yeah. Yeah, that we've been talking about this. And it seems like we're we're close. Not quite there, but but close. And so that, that's got to be encouraging. And I think we're all, well, most of us, save the the internet holdouts, are, are ready for that future step, yeah. I think. Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, people are, there's, there's naturally people are concerned about price. Mm -hmm. And uh, different uh, contenders have made statements about about pricing, but we really don't know. It's it's going to depend on how all these logistics issues get worked out because those are going to affect costs. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's going to be a little interesting to see is that uh, you know some of the fuels are using components that historically have not been considered prime fuels. Prime fuels are gasoline, jet, and diesel. Okay, and so these are materials that fall more into the petrochemicals realm, and the uh, petrochemicals tend to move contracyclically to prime fuels a little bit. The best example of that you can observe every day in your own life is when you go to the grocery store, go look at the eggs. And when you go look at the eggs, say, are the eggs in cardboard cartons or are they in polystyrene cartons, you know, styrofoam cartons? And when petrochemicals are cheap relative to prime fuels, people start using styrofoam cartons because they're cheaper than cardboard cartons. Hmm. When petrochemicals are precious compared to prime fuels, then people switch back to cardboard cartons. So you, you have this, 
this world economic indicator right there in the in the oh, egg, wow. egg refrigerator at your at your grocery store. So I, you know, in the future we'll we'll forecast to have gas prices by going to the grocery store. But but that is going to introduce a new element. You know, we're, what we're all accustomed to is the historical pricing for Avgas has uh, typically been U.S. Gulf Coast premium unleaded plus a margin, 80 cents a dollar or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there's some other adjustments in there for octane value or reformed gasoline value. But, you know, it, that falls into the 80 cent to a dollar. Well, if uh, if we're using other materials in Avgas that aren't really part of that prime fuels world, they're going to move in a different direction, pricing-wise. Mm. Sometimes those will drive the price down. Other times they'll they'll drive the price up. So that's kind of a brave new world of of avgas pricing, that is going to be another variable, and, mm. and we'll get used to it, you know. But it it's going to be new. Yeah, interesting. Well, Paul, thanks so much for the expertise. That's fascinating, and <laughs> yeah, I think we're uh, like I said, I, I'm ready certainly, and I know lots of others are to take the next step. So I'm, I'm encouraged. It sounds like. Uh, Sounds like you're encouraged and, and that's a good sign. So oh, yeah. thanks so much. We were talking about the Cessna panel earlier and how some things are just, I'd rather not think about the structural element being this thin piece of metal behind the, you know, the sub panel. I feel the same way now about fuel. There are just certain things. Knowing how complex it is, it's like, I, how does anybody, how are we ever going to get an Avgas alternative? It's just incredible that it's ever going to happen because the, the amount of investment that has to go into it and the regulatory process and finding the raw materials and everything else. It's a little scary when you have when you think about it on the grand scale. I'd rather not think about it, Ian. I'd rather just put the fuel in my tank and have <laughs> it be fungible, which is a word we learned, yes. and, um, and just keep flying. But yeah, you're right. There's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of infrastructure that goes into it. Any of these changes, you know, will take um, Yeoman's effort on the ground to get it going. Mm-hmm. But at least Paul's able to... to help explain it to us a little bit more and also to a lot of the pilots and owners that are listening to Hangar Talk. Yeah, that's right. All right, David, I think that's it for this week. We will see you next time. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash Hangar Talk and on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.